Shrink Wrap Radio number 816, Ken Binu, Ph.D. on shame, pride, and relational trauma. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today, Dr. Ken Binu, is a longtime therapist and author of the new book, Shame, Pride, and Relational Trauma, Concepts, and Psychotherapy, a complicated-sounding title but really is about fostering aliveness in the therapeutic interaction. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Ken Benno, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I'm really glad to to have you here, and uh, we're going to be discussing your 2022 book, Shame, Pride, and Relational Trauma. Concepts in Psychotherapy. Um, now, you're a psychotherapist, and I'm wondering, do, do you affiliate in your mind with a certain school of psychotherapy? Are you in a certain tradition, would you say? Well, my first response is I try not to affiliate. <laughs> yeah. but, what, but what I mean by that is I try not to be wed in some doctrinaire um, sort of almost ideological way of working. Um, my training includes, um, in graduate school, includes humanistic approaches, largely experiential. Um, later, I had training more in psychodynamic. Um, following that included other things. Um, I used to work with children with severe emotional behavior problems. So you, one way or another, you end up learning about behavioral approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, since I've been doing this a long time, like, for, you know, in one form or another, like 40 years, there's other approaches along the way, narrative sure. approaches, uh, <clears throat> solution-oriented approaches. And then also, as I got more aware of my need to understand trauma, I had some training um some in EMDR, though I don't use that a lot, and then somatic approaches like sensory motor psychotherapy. Okay. So, um, what I and then coherence therapy, which is another yeah. way of working in a non pathologizing way. So, I try to integrate different ways yeah. of working as as you know the moment calls for. Mm-hmm. But I think sort of at heart, I think a humanistic approach, a non-pathologizing approach, Great. And, an, and an integrative approach would sort of... I'm all for that. I promise not to put you into any tiny little box. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, you're very integrative and eclectic in your approach. Yes. 
What was the motivation for writing this book? Well, this is one of those things I felt I had to do. So the motivation was very deep. Um, and I think the motive, not I think, the motivation was both personal and professional. So the personal part is I discovered after some time in therapy, quite some time, that what I was experiencing was shame, mm-hmm. but I didn't know it was. Mm-hmm. So the, the person I worked with for quite some time helped me understand that's what was going on. I used to think I was getting sad, but it was actually shame. Interesting. And so it, it helped me be aware that I was living with that for a long time, related yeah. to experiences in my own you know, childhood and growing up. Right. And my own sensitivities. Um, certain people are more shame-prone. Introverts, sensitive folks like me, are more... Um, uh, more likely to be a little yeah, more shame. Yeah, that, that makes crap. sense. Makes sense to me. And uh, so, well, and then the, profe- yeah. the sorry, and then the professional piece is when you're working with trauma, <clears throat> it's inevitable that you'll bump into shame, even though people don't necessarily talk about it that way. They don't hmm. usually come to therapy and say, "I'm feeling shame," but they might feel depressed, or they might feel anxious about being judged, or they might notice. Um, kind of checked out and they don't know why so there's different ways it might show up but when it shows up in therapy it it has a powerful force to it and like a trauma flashback it takes over and these would be people for example who um, are quite for example successful in their lives and you would say well they have nothing quote to be ashamed of and yet they're coming in and it's a recurring way of reacting and so over time, I realized it was important to differentiate between shame as a, an emotion that rises and falls like other emotions and shame as a mind-body state, which is closer to that kind of flashback that grips the person, either gets triggered at certain moments in time or they're living in a, quote, chronic state of some shame or reaction to shame. So it's the latter that I think yeah. people, when they say they want to work in therapy and I'm talking about therapists now, and they say, you know, how do I work with this? It's usually the the shame state, which is the sh- shorthand for the shame form that is not as emotion, but more as this state of mind and body that grips them. Yeah, um, I know that you get into the neuroscience of this, and it makes me wonder, is there a, uh, neuros- a neuro different neuroscience correlates for emotion versus the state of shame? That's a a great question. Um, So, you know, we don't actually know all of the neuroscience of shame. Um, But if you think about the brain, as others have, as a kind of three brains, right? So there's the brain right on top of the spinal cord. That is the brain stem. And above that, layered, is what they call the limbic system, the mammal brain so the first might be closer to reptile brain mammal brain and then the quote-unquote neocortex that that covers it all and so if you think about each of those layers you will discover in relation to shame different kinds of um, responses or reactions so the thinking part if we went sort of the one that we're most conscious of the thinking part would be i feel terrible what's wrong with me I'm such a loser. And, and they would have people who are gripped in kind of traumatic res- 
a response, shame as a tra- traumatic response to something in a relationship that repeatedly happened and overwhelmed the person. These kind of words become almost tropes. So the person comes to therapy and would say again, you know, what's the point? It'll, I'm always going to be this way. Okay. And they even know they're saying things that they've heard themselves say over and over. So let's call that the, the neocortical expression of shame. Okay. And if we dig deeper into the limbic brain, yeah. we might see reactions to shame. So we might have a fight response directed at the self, but it's a visceral, powerful response. Yeah. You know, right. what is wrong with me? I'm such a loser. So now we're getting the affect associated with it, not just the belief. Yeah. Um, or we might react against it, right? So they feel shamed and they were humiliated and they want to, and they have a reaction to shame back. Or we might have, so that's like a fight other response or a shutting down like a submit response. So there's different reactions to that. And let's call that the, the limbic part of the brain response to shame. But if we dig deeper into the, um, it's called the midbrain of the brainstem. So it's like right in the middle of that brainstem. We have um, immediate orienting responses to something that is experienced as a shaming attack. And one, the very first response when people bump into shame is actually a heightened arousal. It's a shock response. It's like, oh. And that's the very first response. Usually when people think of shame, they think of the kind of shutting down, the kind of hiding one's head in shame, the sort of like you're sinking into a dark hole. But the very first reaction is actually a shock response. And it's like the whole system goes on alert. It's like a, but this is not at the level of feeling. This is just a level of visceral responding. And it's kind of an immediate orienting toward a threat often like in a kind of freeze state. Um, and if you really track closely when a person experiences shame state, you will always find that first, even though they may chronically be more in a shutdown state. When you went, ah, like that, was that the moment of first discovery of shame in oneself? Yeah. You mean, uh-huh. yes. That's like yeah. the first jolt. That's that shock. It's, that jolt. It's, a, it's, a, it's a shock response, uh-huh. yeah. It, it, uh, when we oh. talk about shock trauma, right, yeah. that's a common sort of way of thinking about the initial jolt of trauma. Well, yeah. the kind of shame we're talking about is traumatic, and that is the initial jolt. If it had words, it might be there's a threat to the bond. There's threat to my place in relationship to other people or the group, the tribe. If you think about, you know, just on the most survival level, we need people. We need to not be sent out to the desert. And so okay. this shame is a way of trying to regulate the bond so that you're no longer crossing um, uh, a sort of uh, line of what's quote unquote socially acceptable, either in this one on one relationship or larger. Yeah. Uh, because we can't survive without people. When we're very young. The threat is huge because we're highly dependent on, say, the caregiver. Yeah. Now, so this begins this is, to touch on, in the title, you you refer to it as relational trauma. Uh, correct. And so uh, tell us a bit about relational trauma and how does that differ from other kinds of trauma? For example, the trauma of being in a 
in an automobile accident or being right. uh, suffering from a gunshot. Right. So Alan Shore is the person who coined that term. Um, others who have similar ways of looking at this kind of trauma will call it complex trauma. That's Judith Herman mm-hmm. uh, or developmental trauma disorder. That's Vanderkoek, Bessel Vanderkoek. But the main difference, so you really nailed it when you said the main difference is between people yeah. and relationships that matter, whether it's child to parent or adult to adult, um, as opposed to um, an earthquake or a car accident. That you could say, well, people are affected, but it's a, you know, in these cases, it's a force of nature. So yeah. it's about relationship. It's about sense of self, other, self, other connection. It's about the neurophysiology of that. According to Shore, he's looking at right brain functions, but also how it affects regulation. And the relational trauma from Shore's perspective is either the person is overwhelmed. So there's a heightened arousal or there's a shutting down. But either way, the caregiver, because this is looking at early development, the caregiver fails to regulate the infants or child's um, emotional, physiological state of arousal. So yeah. they fail to regulate it repeatedly. So they eat, they can fail to regulate it by being abusive. In other words, they're the source of the threat. And they can fail to regulate by being absent by not tuned in, um, or to have combinations of both. Right. And so those repeated experiences of the child's not able to self-regulate because they're too young, their systems have not developed to do that, and not being adequately helped to regulate by the parent. This could be a simple thing of the child um, um, crying and the parent says, oh, they're there, as opposed to stop it, or the parent uh, themselves checked out, dissociating. They're not even responsive. So when that happens repeatedly, the brain and the body remember that. Okay, and so that gets stored uh, in the brain and the body. And as relates to shame, okay, if you're not, if you're repeatedly attacked, abused, or you're repeatedly not responded to, not attended to, either way results in shame. Because the, the mind and body only have one way to make sense of this at a very young age, which is not, oh, my, my parent has uh, depression or my parent has their own trauma history. Right, the child right. implicitly concludes there's something wrong with me or I don't matter. Yeah. I just Believe had it. a flashback to my childhood as you were speaking, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I'm sure is not uncommon <laughs> That's when right. people talk to you. That's about right. these these issues. So I remember being told, uh, uh, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry to about. To cry about, right? Yeah. Classic, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right? And so the, the message in that, this relates directly to the relational piece. The, imp- the explicit message is stop crying. Right. Okay? The implicit message is if you want to stay in relationship with me, you have to suppress emotions, particularly any emotion of distress. And so that that repeatedly were to happen, the child basically uh, in their brain and in their body and mm-hmm. in their mind, they, they, they develop um, a way of responding to their own emotions. Because, you know, if you, if you learn to not to, to squelch crying, well, you often learn to squelch a whole lot of other emotions. 
And it's an implicit message that says, if you want to stay in relationship with me, we don't have that. And that becomes then the threat, not just the crying, but, you know, are we going to be in good stead with each other? Am I going to get to have my mommy or daddy or whoever yeah. that I want to Well, have I'm hearing an, another implicit message, though, <laughs> at least in my experience. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the impl- there was an implicit message of, or I'm going to, you know, hit you. There's going to be physical uh, right. uh, corporal punishment of some sort. Right, right, which is a pretty darn powerful way of communicating stop. Yeah. But it's also a very powerful way of communicating um, uh, that one person has dominance or power or value and the other yeah. person ha- right. has is subordinate and devalued. And now we're back to... Um, experience of one up, one down, in or out, all of which are common in the experience of shame. Now, it feels like we're very much into uh, attachment theory Mm -hmm. uh, uh, terrain here, and that maybe this is a a more explicit spelling out of some of the attachment scenarios. Absolutely. I mean, relationship, relational trauma – absolutely can be viewed through the lens of attachment and attachment theory. Um, And one way to think about it is that the shame reaction, which is an automatic reaction, is actually an attempt to regulate the attachment. It's an insecure way of regulating the attachment. It's not a secure relationship if if that's repeatedly happening. Yeah. So... um, so the, the paradox of shame is that it, on the one hand, it results in the person disconnecting from others, right? If you're hiding your head in shame, whether literally or figuratively, you're disconnecting from other people and the right. world, right? right. I, it's a common experience to say, I feel like I'm just falling into a deep, dark hole that I can't get out of, and I'm all alone in that deep, dark hole. So on, mm. the, on that level... It looks like there's no relating. At the same time, that dropping in is related to the implicit or explicit message of there's something wrong with you and go away. So you have both the disconnection, self with self, disconnected. I feel less in touch with my aliveness. And you have the disconnection between self and other, right? Child and parent. So the surface is disconnect. But the, at the same time, it's in order to stay connected, you need to disconnect from certain aspects of your thoughts, your feelings, and behavior. So it's that paradox of connection and disconnection that is very much true in trauma generally and specifically in relation to shame. Uh-huh. Well, we should go to the other side of the uh, equation. In your book, you talk about pride. And, right. And uh, just from reading the title... I don't think the person, I, (laughs) when I read the title, didn't really get fully what what that's all about in your work. So take us there. Okay. Well, you're not really getting it is you're you're in good company because (laughs) uh, if you look up – pride in psychotherapy or uh, you look up pride in trauma – it's almost never mentioned. Yeah. Okay. So if you say shame in relation to trauma, well, that's a pretty hot topic, especially these days. And 
you know, people want to go to workshops because they want to know what to do with that when mm-hmm. they work with their clients or patients. So pride is often not there. So while there's differences of opinion, one way of thinking about shame and pride is that they're, they're contrasts or opposites. Okay, and on the most basic level, if you think about shame as devaluation, right, there's something that makes me of less value or mattering less. Pride is um, of valuation. Now, when we think about pride, many people, especially, well, in different cultures, actually, not just the West, would say that's not a good thing. Pride is not a good thing. And what they're really saying is hubris is not a good thing, what's called hubristic pride. Um, and what I call um, uh, uh, better me pride, meaning I'm better than you. Oh, yeah. Okay? Yeah. So um, that's the pride that we think of in pathological narcissism, arrogance, you know, um, prideful in an excessive yeah. way. You know, this yeah. is the pride go with before, before the fall kind of pride. Okay, but if you look at what's called more adaptive pride, what I call good enough me pride, I'm good enough following Winnicott's notion of the good enough mother. Good enough me pride is the pride of mastery, of accomplishment, of achievement, right? It's, uh, you know, the, the child works for months to learn how to walk and they stand up. And they don't have words, but they, they look proud. They're like, yeah, I right. did it. Like, yeah, I'm now in yeah. the club. I get to walk like those other <laughs> bipeds. Yeah. So, um, But that's also really important in psychotherapy. So Pierre Genet, the psychologist, um, uh, talked about something called the act of triumph. And he talked about this directly in relation to trauma, uh-huh. relational trauma. Uh-huh. And so, you know, therapy is hard work. It's a lot of hard work. And over lots of times, over long periods of time, because you're looking at what's most painful about relationship to self and others, including shame. So as you work hard in therapy, you will have times where, excuse me, Janae called this an act of triumph. And what he said is in the act of triumph, which is like, it's a, it's a version of I did it or we did it. You know, we dealt with that and processed yeah. that. Yeah. And so he said, with that comes the experience of pride. He's referring to the adaptive pride. And it's the pride of accomplishing something in therapy that is, that results uh, as a consequence of a lot of hard work. And that pride doesn't just feel good. That pride gives you a sense of hope, of possibility, and ability to kind of be determined, like if, if I could do that, or we could do that, well, we could do more. We could face the next hurdle of our work. So that's one aspect of of adaptive pride. There's other aspects of pride that um, are more dissociated. It's like a person who has all these wonderful qualities and you say, wow, you really accomplished something. And they don't just feel shame. They might. They have no place to put the pride. They, They look at you like, no, you know, no, that just was. And so that means something in relationship to self, but also others made it not okay to feel basically good enough about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Many people Uh, will discount discount uh, positive things. uh, If you give them a compliment or something, it's just kind of brushed off, brush it off. And they could drop into shame. No, you don't know. I'm really, if you really knew me, you would know I'm this terrible person, but sometimes it's not that sometimes it's, there's no place to hold the pride. Just there's like no place. There's another, um, term I developed 
uh, not the not the experience, just the label of it. And this came from my I love words. I was a English and American literature major in college, so I just loved language. And I, I you give me a word, I look. I want to know the word origin. Yeah. So I looked up the word origin of proud, and the earliest origin of proud is a Latin term, and the the word is spelled P R O D E S S E. Okay, so prodessa. The P-R-O-D is for, F-O-R. The E-S-S-E is to be, right? For to be or for being. Uh-huh. So when I thought about proud, yeah. I thought this is not only about I accomplished something, right? I did something. Okay, that's the good enough me pride. That's the adaptive, hey, I did it or we did it. There's a pride. It's not really an emotion. It's more like what I would call a state, but rather than a trauma state, it's um, a tra- it's an adaptive or transformative state. Affir- affirmation of life and of being. Affirmation of life and being. Yeah. And it's a, a particular way of being, which is I can only be me and you, Dave, can only be mm-hmm. you. And then we have a particular experience together, which is potentially taking pleasure or even delight in our being ourselves and then being with each other. So I call that pro being pride, mm-hmm. but it's not pride as an emotion. It's more an experience of genuine delight in being alive as I and you uniquely are. Um, it's the experience when the baby comes out of the womb and the parents actually are looking forward to having the baby and they go, ah. right. It's just a genuine, Oh, there you are. But, of course, this takes place in more, quote-unquote, everyday experiences. And it's really crucial and critical in psychotherapy with trauma because the consequence of relational trauma is I don't have a sense of my own aliveness, much less a pleasure in or joy in being myself with others. So this pro-being pride experience can emerge or be accessed at times in psychotherapy and it becomes the most powerful antidote to shame as a trauma, trauma, mind body state. It sounds like it could be a, a variant of, uh, of an enlightenment experience. Yeah. So that's really interesting. You say that one of um, uh, my last chapter in my book uh, is subtitled uh, beyond pro being pride. Huh. And, um, it's based on several sessions with a patient of mine who experienced relational trauma of different sorts, abuse and neglect, various kinds. Um, And it's tracking from a transcript of those sessions. There's several transcripts of different sessions. And the short form of what happened is he he was able to experience pro-being pride, after a lot of hard work, that same thing I said that Janae yeah. talked about, but even beyond that, he was feeling really alive, really connected with himself, really feeling connected with others, including me and other people. And what we decided, what I decided to do, really didn't know where it was going to go, is we processed that as we would trauma, but we were processing, if you will, a state of aliveness. So rather than process something painful, we were processing bringing a certain way of attending to something enlivening. Yeah. Having no idea where it would go. Where it went is to, in part, was to a state that 
you might call enlightened or you might call um, psycho-spiritual or transcendent. And it was one of those states of oneness, oneness with self, yeah, oneness right. with others, oneness with the world. And it's very powerful. The, the person I worked with uh, in, this, um, in these sessions was extremely um, articulate, uh, loved literature and poetry, so had words to describe this experience, which yeah. was embodied. This was not an intellectual state. So he used words like radiant joy. Right. So it, 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 and it wasn't like I said, well, here's pro being pride. So this would be a good thing for you now to start using these terms. Yeah. It just was, it just kind of came forward. And it, yeah. it was some, it was akin to what sometimes people describe experiencing in, in these uh, new, um, psychedelic assisted psychotherapies. That's right where I was going to go. <laughs> go well, ahead. Feel, yeah. no, no, you go ahead. Feel free. <laughs> well, to, I was just, it was, that's where my mind was going because I've been tracking that and, and conducting interviews with people who are doing that kind of work. And uh, so I'm wondering, how was it for you? He was having this experience in session with you, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe out of yeah. session as well. But in yes. session with you, Yes. So what was going on inside you as right. he's going into this state? Yes. Well, I was like stunned and delighted and oh, how did sure. we get here? It's like one of those things in therapy where you say, Oh, you're, you, you know, you did this. I, I don't feel like I did anything. I yeah. feel like we kind of bumped into something. So I was excited. Sure. Um, this this experience, the way we were working is tr is tracking a lot of physical sensations. So the way he works when he's tracking physical sensations is his eyes are closed. He's very much internally experiencing and reporting it. So this is how I can get transcribed sessions because I'm taking notes, <laughs> <laughs> which you might not otherwise do under yeah. other other conditions. So I'm like the the feeling I'm having is oh my gosh, look where we are and and. Um, I was sort of amazed. I was delighted. I was, you know, excited. I was curious. And the thing that happens with pro being, in some ways, you know, we talk about shame as a contagion, right? If you're feeling a That's state of shame, right where I was going to go I too. Drop. So this is like pro being as a contagion. Right. Okay, I was so, going to ask you if it activated something similar in you, and it sounds like it did. It, it always does. It yeah. always does. So um, I have sort of three definitions of pro-being, but they're all interrelated. One uh -huh. is self with self. I'm delighted in being me, delighting in being myself with with myself. I'm delighted in being you. Excuse me. I'm delighted in being myself with you and being delighted in yourself with me. So that's interrelational. The first one was intra. And then I, extra relational is with the world. Okay, so when um, I get a little spark of one of my patients' pro-being, they may or may not be in touch with it, right? It could be a simple little thing. It doesn't always have to be this ecstatic experience. It could be, you know, he has a characteristic way of turning his head. Or he, he when he talks about video games, which I'm no big fan of, when he talks about video games, he kind of lights up. There's something about his relationship to that particular video game where he lights up. When I feel like we are contacting something that is, if you will, the essential nature of the person I'm working with, mm -hmm. I get a tingling sensation in uh -huh. my body. Yeah. Uh, and usually in my arms uh -huh. and, and sometimes my chest. And it's not uncommon that if I 
if we pay attention to what the patient is experiencing, he or she is having, not always, he or she is having a similar experience. So now we're kind of vibrating, if you will, yeah. energetically feeling this aliveness together. Right. Um, so there was a, a version of that that was absolutely happening when um, I was with my patient in that state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, this is very exciting, and I'm sure it's exciting for you. And uh, so much more than I got in the title, you know, <laughs> when, right. when I hear you discussing right. it, uh, right. not only with me now, but in another interview that you did uh, that I uh, was able to listen to in a, another podcast. And mm-hmm. uh, I thought, wow, what a contrast to, uh, you know, to to an academic Mm-hmm. Uh, to a very academic presentation, right? And, and right. Uh, so it's great to experience the the uh, the heart and guts mm. uh, mm-hmm. of you and, and your work. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to explore with you a bit, going back to the other side, is sort of cross cultural mm-hmm. relationships, and I'm thinking, for example, of. Uh, Asian societies have been characterized by uh, anthropologists, I assume, as being shame-based cultures. Right. And so what about that level? Is there the possibility of a of some kind of a cultural overlay or underlay right. that predisposes right. one right. in one direction or the other? So, so um, to be transparent, I did not include that in my book. But it's something that comes up more and more, mm-hmm. right? Um, what are the cultural or intergenerational or societal aspects of shame or pride? So one of those generalizations is, you know, the Eastern cultures, the Asian cultures are shame-based uh, because they're, quote, collective, right? Yeah. And, and then they, the, again, I don't actually buy this, so I'll just kind of respond to what you're saying. Okay. And then the Western is guilt-based. Uh-huh. Now, that by itself is, um, is uh, um, what would be the word, cultural-centric, because guilt in many pe- people's view is better than shame, right? We, shame is considered earlier and more primitive, and guilt is sort of higher evolved. Guilt is, I hurt you and I regret it. Shame is, I'm a terrible human being. So, uh-huh. so that just that is already suggesting some bias to be to at least but if you if you think about shame as regulating social emotions so the trauma um, uh, therapist and writer judith herman talks about shame as the primary regulator of social interactions now, i'm not talking about trauma shame um, and even more so than fear so just day-to-day shame. So if you think about a collective and, um, you know, the, the societies that are more considered collective, right, uh, shame comes up in relation to a threat to the group. So if there's too much emphasis on self, which is more, quote, in the Western societies, right. if there's too much emphasis on self, shame will be likely evoked or act activated in the other person, basically to get the person to stop making it all about themselves and think about the group. Yeah. Right. So often when people talk, they, they not even in a state of shame when they talk about themselves, they're actually talking about a group. Okay. So it's not so much that, you know, the Eastern or Asian cultures have more shame than we do. 
I, this is my opinion. I'm not saying I have research yet to support it, mm-hmm. but um, they're more about what the shame is about. In that case, it's about you becoming too individualistic. That's where the shame will come up. Now, if you think about Western cultures, what do we pride ourselves in? Like in the United States, we pride ourselves in being independent, right? right? Self-made man or woman, right? So there's no... It's like non-relate. It sounds non-relational. How did he get that way? He just was that way from the start. Well, did he? Anyone help him? No. That he's just a pick you up by the bootstraps kind of guy yeah. or gal. Okay? It's kind of a, a myth that we have about ourselves. I think, right? That's right. It's it's something that we have projected on our cultural screen for ourselves. Right. And, right. And you know, try to live up to sometimes. Right. So there's the Marlboro man literally yeah. on the billboard. <laughs> yeah. Right. So so the shame then, if that's the predominant, you know, um, often male, but the predominant, uh, you know, ethos, you should be independent on your own, uh, self-reliant. The shame is when you're dependent and rely on the group. Right. So sometimes in therapy, men and women would say something like, uh, I'm just feeling sorry for myself. I'm so pitiful. I'm so weak. And it's, so you hear all the shame associated with that. But actually, a lot of times, it's, it's uh, oh, they say, I'm needy. I'm so needy. And often what they're experiencing is they have needs. They have needs to be comforted or needs to rely on another person. But given their trauma, they learn and the if you will, societal trauma, they learn to be like, you know, the only good thing is to be independent. So the shame there is associated with the collective, whereas the shame in the other cultures, the more collective cultures, is in the individual. So I think, again, I'm speaking broadly and hypothetically, really, but I think there's different things that are shame, as opposed to they've got shame and we don't. On the flip side of thinking about um, subcultures in our own country and I guess elsewhere, where uh, there's a lot of uh, is sort of very prideful behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so-and-so dissed me, you know, disrespected right. me. Which is shame. They shamed me. So, yeah. So you – so there's a lot of um, – Armoring around uh, mm-hmm. uh, not being disrespected. Correct. Right. And if if you throw in in their racism, sexism, any of those isms, yeah, right, then you have historical, cultural, systemic, societal, <laughs> right, shaming, and not just shaming, humiliating. Quite a witch's brew, a witch's witch's brew. (laughs) Right? So it it is a normal response, not just to be shamed, but to be humiliated, which has a sort of cruelty to it. I will make a public display of your lowliness. The word origin of of humiliation is humble, which is to make low, and of the earth like dirt. So... So if you are repeatedly humiliated, not just you as individual, but your people your race, for example, then you have history that has been embedded in in the group and in the individual and in the body. 
And if you're repeatedly humiliated over hundreds and hundreds of years, there's the intergenerational transmission of trauma. And the flip side of humiliation and this kind of shame is rage. And so when people say, well, why did, why did you attack him? He said, they might say, he dissed me. Well, he, it wasn't such a big deal. Well, it was a big deal if you're carrying centuries, if you will, yeah. of being humiliated. Then that rage, and a lot of times, not a lot of times, but some of the times, um, a, a person of different race, it doesn't have to be one, a person can respond with rage to the point of being murderous. And they say, well, why? They say, I snapped. Yeah, well, that's just, a trauma response, yeah. but it's, it's in, in part embedded in um, trauma, personal and collective, of being humiliated and a rage response, which yeah. on one level is normal. It's a way of saying, I exist. It becomes problematic if the person acts out to the point of violence. But the initial rage response is, no, I exist. I'm not nothing. I'm something. And that's why it's such a huge response, because you're fighting for your physical, but also psychological life. Yeah, you're reading my mind. I was just, I was thinking of murder just before mm-hmm. you uh, mm-hmm. went there. Um, let's see, what else did I want to ask you about here? We've talked a little bit about state theory. Uh, we haven't talked about the theory, but you have mm-hmm. uh, invoked mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. the state. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the the ecstatic place that this one fellow mm-hmm. got to, or I don't mm-hmm. know if it was male or female, got mm-hmm. to in, male, in, 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 in uh, a session. Uh, do you have another case example that might help to illustrate your word, being careful not to, you know, to, mm-hmm. to, to have it be uh, anonymous? But mm-hmm. there, uh, You mean where something like that? Um, or, or, just, or just more related to the experience of pro-being? Um, what, what are no, you referring I, to? I guess I don't know what I was thinking. Somebody, I guess I was thinking more on the shame side of things. Uh-huh. That somebody comes to you and uh, you know, and they're unhappy, and mm-hmm. it turns out that it's kind of shame based. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a good case uh, at hand? Uh, yeah. Well, yes. Um, okay. This was this this person. Um, um, <clears throat> taught me I needed to go back to training and learn about trauma. So this person and I had an excellent rapport. In, in fact, as we got to know each other, we dis- we discovered we had the same Myers-Briggs. <laughs> so <laughs> we were both introverted, we were both sensitive, etc. So um, we're very similar. So um, we had a great connection. Yeah. And this person had a history of sexual trauma, but the, the main trauma for this person was actually growing up with a parent. Uh, this is a woman and growing up with a parent who they described as it was as though they looked right through me. So presumably this parent was uh, dissociative, dissociated, psychotic, borderline psychotic. I don't know. But what I do know is that uh, as an adult, when 
my patient brought their spouse to meet the parent, the adult spouse, husband said, I had the same experience. It's like they looked right through me. Okay. So there was. I'm not sure what you're saying. Look right through me. Does that mean? It's as if, as if I'm, uh, as, if you're not there? That, as if you're not there. Oh, okay. It's like you're, you're with the person and it's like, they don't see me. Okay. They yeah. just don't see me at all. Right. Well, this was a repeated experience. Okay. So this person that I write about in the book, his name is Laura. This person experienced all the different kinds of shame, including healthy shame. There's a healthy shame, which is basically, I want to be uh, more true to my values. So that I call that uh, um, a kind of self-writing. But they, they experienced all kinds of shame, all the different kinds of shame. And w- one of the forms of shame that I didn't, I didn't fully understand it at the time. So it's only in retrospect that I came to understand this. But they described this experience of imagining they were in a plane or being in a plane and imagining they were going to walk off the edge of the wing and drop. And I thought, oh, well, they're anticipating um, hitting the ground and dying. And they said, no, walking off the end of the plane and ceasing to be disintegrating okay now on the surface that doesn't look like shame at all um but you can imagine and again i didn't understand at the time uh you can imagine if that was their repeated experience in relation to a parent who failed to see them who failed to kind of viscerally and emotionally acknowledge their existence then that fantasy of going off the plane and ceasing to be would have been a visceral re-experiencing of a relational trauma okay so how does this relate to shame um there's a wonderful article about a by an author named Villy, w-i-l-l-e and it's called the shame of existing okay so there's a shame of i did something that is socially or relationally um unacceptable attacked etc but then there's the shame of being. So this is the shame that my patient experienced repeatedly. And um, for example, they were working with me, but they also worked with a trauma specialist, because at the time I didn't know how to do things like EMDR. I had no training. But I knew they were having traumatic reactions. So I said, well, how about you and I continue and you work with this other person? And um, in the work with this other person, which was very helpful, Okay, the work actually helped them process some of uh, things related to sexual trauma. However, there was one instance where um, they had a very strong reaction to the to the therapist coming a few minutes late. I mean, they were just enraged, and I said, "Well, I don't get it." And the therapist is a good therapist and a good person. They're not like me. And I said, "Well." I don't get it. I come late sometimes. You know, I run over and I come late. And they said, yeah, but you always say, I'm sorry I'm running late. Okay, so I realized in retrospect, my saying I'm sorry I ran late means you have worth and value. You exist. Our relationship matters. And I regret not being here for you when you needed me to be. The therapist didn't say that. Just said, come on in. 
So the reaction is actually rooted in shame, in this case, the shame of not of existing or not existing. Um, this is making, making me think of suicidality, mm-hmm. that, uh, that this kind of uh, feeling might often mm-hmm. lead to suicide or suicide attempts. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I'm no expert in suicidology, so I imagine, but my, you know, kind of basic sense would be there's many different things. Yeah. That could result in suicide. Many, many different things. But one, um, I think fits with what you're saying, which is, um, an acting out on the re- experience that they already repeatedly had of not being or not mattering or not existing or seeing no reason or purpose to exist. Yeah. And so that could be shame based, even if it's not expressed as I feel ashamed. Yeah. Um, I think we've touched on the things that, uh, that I particularly wanted to touch on. I guess, um, well, let me ask you, is there anything else that you wanted to get across in this interview that maybe you, you haven't articulated in the way that you would like to? Um, maybe it's implicit in what I've said, but the first thing I would say is once you start seeing things through the lens of shame and pride, you start seeing it showing up everywhere. Yeah. And you could say, well, that's a problem. Like, it's not really. Mm, it's actually there. And, and the reason it's there implicitly is because we're talking about some things that are just fundamental to being human. Self. Right my relationship with myself, my relationship with you, our relationship, the sense of the sense of a group or a tribe. So number one, it shows up all the time in trauma, relational trauma. It's going to always show up because the, the fear and shame, two main drivers of trauma, fear and shame, is what the trauma in relationship is about. So the first thing is expected to show up. The other thing would be Find ways to name it. Sometimes people say, well, I don't want to name it as shame because they're going to feel more shame. I would say it's like saying I don't want to name the word suicide when the person is suicidal. It's the opposite. So I have learned to get comfortable with naming it. And in some ways, just the name actually allows them to get a little bit of psychological distance between the experience, the state of mind and body, and the capacity to observe. And that capacity to observe with genuine interest, uh, non-judgment, non-shaming, is an essential part of the healing. So I've learned to name it and have a way to help people name it so that they can be in it and observe it at the same time. Um, so I guess that, that would be some of the things. And I would just emphasize that the shame that people struggle with as therapists, with patients who've experienced trauma, is not the shame of I'm having a feeling. And so you have to appreciate the aspects of this that relate to dissociation, that relate to a kind of a chronic state, not just in this moment. And you have to have special ways of working with that, just like you have to have special ways of working with trauma more broadly. So... um Understanding that will sometimes help therapists at least understand why they're getting stuck and that there's other ways to work with this. Um, 
I have my ways, other people have theirs, but there's ways to work with this um, that go beyond um, that go beyond uh, quote unquote helping a person feel okay about themselves again. Do you have a website that you'd like people to know about? Uh, I just have a website through on my name under Psychology Today, so you'll find it there. Okay. Um, and uh, you can find uh, my but my books website. Um, I have a website through something called ResearchGate that lists a lot of my articles. I could send you that link if you're the people who are listening would be interested that that would just let you see various things that I've written about shame and pride in relational trauma. Yeah. That might be a nice link to put into our show notes. Yeah. Uh, So if you'll send that to me, I I will put that in the show notes. So uh, Dr. Ken Bino, I want to thank you for being my guest today on shrink wrap radio. Uh, you, You have very differentiated way of seeing things and I I find that very impressive I was pleased to interview my recent guest Dr. Ken Beno author of the 2022 book Shame, Pride and Relational Trauma Concepts and Psychotherapy. As stiff and academic as that title sounds, I found him to be surprisingly expressive. The book itself was challenging to write, taking several years or more. In fact, the material was probably cooking inside him considerably longer. Part of the reason it was difficult to write is that the topic is deeply rooted in his own personal life. In fact, he shared that it came out of his personal therapy, which had been going on for some time before the advent of a shocking realization. Namely, he was startled to experience that his issues were deeply rooted in shame. He was quick to point out that this was not an intellectual insight or even an emotional experience as much as a bodily knowing that was suddenly thrust upon him as a result of long therapeutic work. In his writing and experience, pride and shame exist in a kind of yin-yang complementarity. The sort of pride he's writing about is not hubris, but rather a joyful, celebratory experience of existence, whereas shame refers to a profound alienation from the right to exist. Pride completely owns and embraces that right. Dr. Beno emphasizes that shame involves an extreme alienation from others and even oneself. It has both an extrapersonal and an intrapersonal aspect. The same is true of pride, I think, as he speaks of it. The challenge of writing this book lay not only in expressing something very personal, but also in the fact that there was almost no serious psychological writing or research on either shame or pride. So we must regard him as a pioneering groundbreaker. Again, he emphasizes that these are bodily states rather than the more transitory stuff of intellectual insights or emotions. 
I'm impressed by Dr. Benoit's finely tuned powers of discrimination in parsing the complexities of human personality and psychotherapeutic process. These skills are the result of 40 years of clinical experience and serious engagement in his own personal experience as a therapy client. Along with this, we must appreciate that his therapeutic approach is extremely integrative of a wide variety of therapies. I have the impression that this book is primarily directed toward other therapists to help them better understand their clients and to better negotiate some of the impasses that arise. As much as anything, I think his work provides us another set of lenses through which to view the world. He likens it to the perceptual transformation that occurs after buying a new car. You buy a Volkswagen, and suddenly it seems like they are all over the place as you drive down the road. It's not that he's identified a new phenomenon of pride-slash-shame so much as seeing what's been there all along. I believe that this book will also be of interest to some therapy clients as well as those considering going into therapy. However, it's definitely not a quick-fix self-help book. He emphasizes that the sort of therapy he's talking about is a lot of hard work, but worth it in the end. The book, again, is Shame, Pride, and Relational Trauma, Concepts, and Psychotherapy by Ken Benau. And Benau is spelled B-E-N-A-U. Hi, I'm Heather. I'm a graduate student, and I was really excited to stumble upon Shrinkwrap Radio and an article with an author whose articles I've been reading recently it was very cool to hear. I chose to send a contribution to Shrinkwrap Radio because I really want to support this kind of grassroots educational initiative that's being done. I made a small contribution, and I figure, you know, for every, I, I gained something from it to, by listening to it, and I would like to support that being out there for other people to hear. And, and I just, it's a really cool thing that you guys are doing, and so thank you. Well, thank you, Heather. I appreciate your taking the step to make yourself part of the Paying Shrink Wrap radio community. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks again to today's guest, Dr. Ken Beno, author of the 2022 book, Shame, Pride, and Relational Trauma, Concepts and Psychotherapy, for discussing his groundbreaking work on pride and shame. I really appreciated his personal sharing and his finely tuned powers of discernment. Next week, my guest will be Joanna LaProd, Ph.D., speaking about her book and personal journey, Forged in Darkness, The Many Paths of Personal Transformation. I hope you'll join us then. Until next time... This is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous. <laughs>